This is your host, Caitlin Cook, and welcome back to the Dead Kate Bounce Experience. Wisdom Tree, BlackRock, Vanguard, PIMCO, Invesco, Oppenheimer, the list goes on. But the global asset management industry encompasses trillions of dollars in assets under management. How are they engaging and innovating when it comes to crypto? I spoke with Jeremy Schwartz and Will Peck of Wisdom Tree, a European-based $80 billion asset management firm, to find out. Jeremy Schwartz is the Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree, leading the firm's investment strategy team in the construction of Wisdom Tree's equity indexes, quantitative active strategies, and multi-asset model portfolios. Will Peck is head of digital assets at Wisdom Tree. In this role, Will leads the firm's strategy group, leads corporate development, and drives other strategic initiatives for the firm, including the launch of Wisdom Tree Prime, a financial services app built from the ground up on blockchain rails with DeFi concepts. Additionally, Will is responsible for oversight of the firm's investments in emerging technologies. Not only is Wisdom Tree a leading global asset manager, but they're also one of the industry's most forward-thinking firms, heavily embracing Web3, blockchain technology, and crypto assets within their business. We cover why and how they're integrating the future of finance into their model, as well as how they perceive the broader asset management industry to acclimate to this emerging space. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Jeremy and Will. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency. Jeremy, Will, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Kate, we're excited to be here with you. Thanks for hosting us. Great to be here. Yeah, excited to have both of you on. First time having two guests, so this is great. Double the fun. Uh, Lots to talk about today. Really want to cover the whole asset management sort of industry from a bird's eye view, as well as what you're doing with Wisdom Tree. But first, always think it's beneficial to talk about, you know, where you're coming from in terms of background so people know who they're listening to. And just a little bit about your crypto origin stories as well, which is always a little fun. So, Will, we'll start with you. Yeah, sure. So I, uh, my background in crypto starts, so my title is head of digital assets. So uh, I kind of look after our new burgeoning digital assets business unit uh, that we have at Wisdom Trees. So my background in crypto is really Wisdom Trees background in crypto, I'd say. So I've been with the firm for eight years, uh, previously in a more general uh, strategy role. And about four years ago, we had uh, bought a business in Europe called uh, ETF Securities, which was one of the largest gold ETF sponsors in the world. Um, and at that time, you know, people were just kind of talking like, you know, gold, great, is this Bitcoin thing, like people are call- calling it digital gold, like, is, this, is there something there that, uh, you know, is this going to be competitive with gold over time? You know, no one's really sure. And I, I don't know that people are still sure today, but that led to us, you know, looking at that and thinking, well, we could try launching a Bitcoin ETF ourselves or ETP in the European market. Uh, and so I was part of the team that did that. We launched uh, one of the world's first uh, physically backed uh, Bitcoin ETPs in Switzerland about three years ago. Uh, and um, a group of us just worked on that. And that was kind of the start of a long journey in digital assets and crypto for us and for myself as well. 
my story, I, I guess I, I, you know, I've been with Wisdom Tree now 17 years. I've been there from the really early beginnings of the formation. Before that, I was working with Professor Siegel down at Wharton. Um, my first project with him 20 years ago was the, the third edition of Stockstronger, and that's coming out again, uh, sixth edition in just a few weeks. Uh, and, you know, so I, I had this background on stocks and indexing and ETFs, and, you know, I've, I've seen Wisdom Tree grow from just equities to bonds, commodities now, and, and crypto. I, I guess I, I started getting into it, watching what well, my brother got into it first. He was telling about what he was doing and 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 working with Will and the and the SWAT team on the corporate strategy team of like, how do we go beyond even the exposure? We were thinking about your corporate level of how does blockchain change financial services. So I, I, we started getting more interested. Um, one of your former colleagues, Tyrone Ross, got me my actual first Bitcoin at, at uh, when he was part of a, a firm called Eagle Brook. I got my first Bitcoin through them. Uh, and, and that started my own journey into thinking about how does both the exposures and how does it actually transform our business, actually. So I, I think there's a lot we can get into where we're going as a firm. It, it's to us much more than just the exposures. I mean, the exposures are interesting and started building model portfolios around it, in, including, you know, traditional assets, stocks, bonds with crypto. But 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 I think we're, we're just as excited about the sort of changing infrastructure element of it as well. Yeah, and I'm super to get in, or super excited to get into all of that. There's a lot to cover, right? So I think maybe it would make sense to start out at a bird's eye view, looking at the asset management industry as a whole. You know, you have BlackRock, Wisdom Tree, obviously Vanguard, Oppenheimer, all the global firms. Um, don't really know as much on the European side or otherwise, but looking at it from a global view. What have you seen? Um, maybe we'll start with Jeremy on this too, for like global CIO, right? Uh, from a macro perspective, how are different firms around the world starting to approach this? You've seen it embraced in a variety of different ways, but have you seen it be, been, um, you know, kind of adoption vary from country to country or different regions? I know the U.S. is obviously a hot topic for, for us for obvious reasons. The U.S. hasn't made it easy for, you could say, for the traditional advisor community to incorporate it into their into their business. You know, right now you still have to go direct to one of the wallets, one of the exchanges. You can't really incorporate it, or it's been hard to incorporate the way they they're used to incorporating other assets, which is you have a you know custodian like a Schwab or Fidelity, and you you know you're you're trading stocks and bonds in a traditional account. You've got to bring in these other crypto custodian. So it's been a workflow because we haven't allowed ETFs to make direct access very easy. You, you got to go through a bunch of other hoops to open these sort of technology providers are helping to do that. Uh, and, I, and, and we're bullish on that. I mean, we think we, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to work with OnRamp and, and some other tech platforms to enable this sort of direct exposure incorporating to model portfolios where we build some custom model portfolios that can put a few percent into Bitcoin or ETH or some combinations thereof, or, or even an index strategy, um, that sort of broad diversified exposure. But I'd say it's still early days, largely just because of the workflow issue. Um, and, and certainly the, the direct exposure indexes has come during sort of this crypto winter for the last nine months. So you, you could say, you know, for a while people were saying, I, man, I wish it would pull back so I could get an entry point. Well, it has pulled back. And now you got to think through um, the longer term uh, and how much is right you know, and, and I think we're trying to provide that guidance through some sample model portfolios that will have a few percent in there and we'll work with people to customize it. But it, you know, to me, it, it, where do you fund it from? And 
there's all sorts of questions, um, but certainly Europe is, I'd say, further advanced in this because you have the direct products. So we're, we're having a lot more interesting conversation there, as well as in some other foreign markets where uh, you could have the, the, the products that make it easier to incorporate into their practice. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. So being in the space from an asset manager for four years or so now, uh, I think, you know, three, four years ago, people kind of thought you were crazy. Like it just didn't really, and everyone has a story in crypto, but I guess specifically from the asset management lens, I mean, you know, it was, you know, still in the days of like, oh, you know, I guess some people still like ask the question, oh, is Bitcoin like a fraud, but like kind of crazy stuff that didn't make a lot of sense. And, um, you know, like we were there relatively early. Um, kind of as an asset manager convinced of it, more and more people have come over time. I mean, Fidelity, to their credit, was there from like the very early days as well in the United States. And like, it's Fidelity. It's one of like the most well-known US uh, wealth managers and asset managers. So, uh, and then you get to today where like, I mean, BlackRock's like was kind of the last domino. I feel like the, the dam is really broken in terms of uh, asset managers and financial services firms engaging in both the asset, like crypto as an asset class, like Bitcoin, ETH, et cetera. Um, you can say, I mean, debate a little bit their engagement beyond Bitcoin and ETH due to like some concerns around securities rules. But um, then also just in terms of like the technology itself, where you're having, you know, firms as big as BlackRock talking about tokenization. You had a bunch of kind of M&A and investment activity in the space out of uh, Europe as well. So uh, things have certainly evolved a lot. And I, you know, I guess the U.S., despite some more regulatory unclarity, you could say, I, I don't feel like the US firms are really behind at all in terms of their ability to engage. Like people are really doing their research and engaging on it. Uh, and I think are well positioned as um, you know, regulations will hopefully continue to evolve. It's, it's crazy that you mentioned that um, even, I think you said what, three years ago, like an ETP I'm going live, which is crazy to think about within the scope of, you know, from a U.S. perspective, right, where there's still talk about even getting a spot ETF approved. Um, so definitely interesting to think about the different ways in which people can get exposure to crypto, whether that's owning direct, um, as we all know, through different products. What does it look like from a product perspective uh, globally for, you know, what asset managers are working on to provide to their clients and what the benefits of those products are versus owning direct? Yeah, I mean, in uh, the European market, so ETPs starting in Switzerland have been allowed for about three years now. And now, I mean, it's like it's like the ETF, ETP space in every market. It is incredibly competitive. You've got, you know, maybe 15 firms offering various forms of uh, direct crypto exchange traded products. Say ETPs, you know, it's really just a kind of regulatory nomenclature difference, uh, some structural differences, but you can think of them like ETFs in the United States. Uh, like a gold ETF in the US is a gold ETP in Europe. Um, so they function very similarly to how you think about like a gold or platinum backed uh, exchange traded product in the European market. And they're just great kind of workflow and access vehicles for people. Uh, you know, if you've got a brokerage account, you're a wealth manager, you're a family office, whomever, uh, there are lots of advantages of owning directly, you could say. Uh, there are also lots of workflow challenges, and it's kind of in a different environment than the rest of your assets, right? Uh, so you can set up your own direct custody relationship with like, uh, you know, a Coinbase or, you know, whatever custodian, but it may sit kind of far apart from like your U.S. large cap equity fund. And, you know, if you're actually trying to do true portfolio management, those workflow flow solutions are really important. So ETPs in the European market are, are allowed, you know, on different exchanges. It's on kind of a country by country level instead of just like Europe as a whole. Uh, but there's been a lot of development there. 
and more and more kind of issuers are coming in and more and more clients are getting comfortable. So we compete with some kind of startup like firms like 21 shares, um, coin shares, but also with like Invesco and Fidelity in that market. So uh, it very much looks like how the ETF market in some ways looks in the United States. Uh, in the U.S., right, there's no ETF approved yet. You know, there's been GBTC uh, and other OTC traded trusts out for a long time now. Those are very clearly not ETFs and not ETPs. They don't have a true creation redemption mechanism, which has led to some of these divergence of uh, prices between net asset value and um, the market price. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, Grayscale's currently suing the SEC to try and get um, a their ETF application approved. Um, we're not suing the SEC, is what I can say. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that kind of evolves over time. Uh, but, um, you know, I think ultimately we'll get there on a Bitcoin ETF in the United States. But the way the SEC has kind of raised their objections, it, um, you know, there's still work to overcome uh, in terms of that. So we'll you kind of need to see what happens there over the coming uh, months and years. Some of the conversations we're having very live are like sort of family offices who have their own direct exposure and actually feel, um, you know, we're, we're, we're in deep talks with at least one family office with a sizable allocation that they might feel more comfortable with the institutional protections and safeguards that we can bring to the table through the wrapped product. And they actually are, are starting to feel more comfortable with the the ETF or ETP wrapper versus how they're holding it in in, in, in a in a wallet today. And so I think there, there is some, you know, you could say you have the additional institutional type of diligence that we do to safeguard the crypto and, and ensure things function smoothly. There's also, you know, in, in, as you go to some of the beyond Bitcoin ETH, there are staking opportunities that we're starting to do in things like Solana. Uh, and I think it's, you know, we're actually able to earn some additional return beyond the asset price, which is very exciting. We can help manage that for people. And, and, and particularly, um, you know, we're looking to do that on, on ETH when, when we can as well. So I think it's going to be a very interesting opportunity there. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there are definitely actually advantages in terms of concentrating liquidity, being able to, you know, trade in a product that has active market makers in it and things like that, because spreads, as anyone who's traded crypto know, who's kind of familiar with traditional assets, like the spreads on these assets on retail exchanges are like, they're kind of like crazy high. Uh, and so if you're able to actually kind of, tap into kind of greater liquidity that might come with kind of a concentrated liquidity vehicle, like a well-structured ETP, there's definitely some advantages there. And then I think the innovations with staking going forward are actually very well set up for ETPs or other kind of pooled vehicles, right? Where the issues with staking are that there's a liquidity period, you know, liquidity lockup. So if you're just trying to stake yourself, you first of all, you've You've got to come up with 32 ETH, right? And then you've got to lock that up for a certain amount of time. If you're doing it as part of like a broader vehicle where everyone's contributing a certain amount of ETH, you, you get over the 32, obviously, but also there's elements of the liquidity that you can kind of manage around with a well-structured product. So I, I definitely think that's going to be an area of innovation going forward, whether it's ETPs themselves or with other, you know, there's various ways you can figure it out. Um, a key piece, though, is you got to trust your counterparts because, you know, we've seen over the past six months, I think the story in crypto and you could say financial services broadly is that people had no idea what was happening with their assets behind the scenes. Right. You know, they thought, oh, I'm just putting my money in Celsius. They're just giving me a free yield and whatever without like recognizing that they were making, you know, uncollateralized loans to like a giant hedge fund in the middle of it. So 
I, I do think there's certainly protections of like ETFs and ETPs that they provide, but it doesn't kind of excuse people from needing to do their due diligence on the people who are providing those services because, um, you know, you just got to know what you own. Like I think people who invested in some of these OTC traded trusts didn't really understand what they were buying when they just typed in Bitcoin into their E-Trade account and then might have bought something at a giant premium to what it was worth, then it traded down on the other side. So um, I, I do think it doesn't, you know, these well-structured products, you still got to kind of understand them and then uh, be able to, um, you know, speak to them. For sure. And I, I think you bring up a lot of important points, but one of those being from a, from a credibility perspective and really onboarding a broader group of traditional incumbents into this space, whether that's, you know, the, the clients of advisors, advisors themselves, family offices, there's definitely a benefit to the familiarity of traditional firms, like say a wisdom tree or a BlackRock, and knowing that they'll do their due diligence, they'll handle the management behind the scenes. And it's someone that they worked with before. So from your perspective too, I'd be curious to hear about um, you mentioned that the markets overseas have gotten really saturated in regard to ETPs and so on. I think there's a huge benefit, though, also to being a first mover. Um, obviously, a lot of risk associated with that as well. But I think that's something to think about, especially in the States when it comes to innovation. And this could probably lead into a broader conversation about how Wisdom Tree is trying to lead the charge here as well. A hundred percent. I mean, just getting your mind. I remember when I first heard the idea of like a Bitcoin ETP, like it made, it made no sense to me. I, I just couldn't like wrap my head around it at first. I was like, what, like, what are you talking? Like, it, I think everyone kind of goes through that. And then you kind of understand what you're talking about a bit better. And then you get more comfortable with it. But that applies across like a vast range of areas in terms of, you know, digital assets broadly defined. So this could be, you know, crypto assets or like also like tokenized, you know, assets or various things like that, that rely on kind of some foundational like technological things like signing a transaction, right? Pro uh, public private key pairs, like being able to understand and speak to those things better and kind of establish like a core skill set across, you know, various parts of your firm, whether that's like, you know, on the research side, somebody like Jeremy or like legal compliance, like there are different like things and it requires people to get their heads around it. And so part of our, part of what I'm, ex I'm excited, we started when we did is that, you know, now is everyone, everyone is coming to this, like, at least we're not like doing that initial wave, like we're already up on our education, we've got a team, we've got kind of well-defined expertise and a skill set here. Uh, which, you know, makes me excited for all of our initiatives in the space going forward. And hopefully it gives our clients confidence in terms of dealing with this, right? That we've actually gone through that process, we visited like five crypto custodians and did all the due diligence. We can speak to how like cold storage actually works. All of these things are really important. Um, and it's just, you know, anyone who's coming to the space, right? It just takes, it's not just reading it. You've actually got to like do it to really understand it and be able to build products here. Yeah, that's such an interesting point too, right? Because I, I think a lot of people get very easily overwhelmed in regard to onboarding, opening a wallet on their own, managing the assets on their own, the private public key sort of uh, factor as well. And there's a lot of benefits to working with a firm that can sort of where you can outsource all of those things. And not to say that it's it's forever, right? But in terms of this podcast is about building bridges between TradFi and DeFi. And I would say this is sort of the same thing, right? You're making it easier 
for people to get exposure to the space. And once they have exposure to the space, then when you have skin in the game, you're more incentivized to start learning about it and kind of dip your toe into some other exciting things. And from the sounds of it, you know, I, I think firms are trying to support innovation, come up with new products that will sort of lead their, their users further and further into the chasm as well, which is super exciting. Yeah. I mean, I've, so I get asked by like kind of the more crypto like centric, it's like, well, what about not your keys, not your coin, right? Like, is this kind of running against that? It's like, you know, people want to hold their own keys, like more power to them. Right. But like, we're talking about trying to expand this asset class and this technology from kind of the first hundred, 200 million users to the next billion users. And like, even as somebody who's technological or not sophisticated, but like knows enough in this space, it's still scary to be like doing your own on-chain transactions and wondering like, ah, did I like write this thing down? Right. Like all this stuff, it's, it just takes a lot of diligence and work. And so for some people, that's like the whole point of that. And that's great. And like more power to you. We'd love to find ways to serve you. But for the vast, I think the vast majority of the next wave of adopters are going to be looking for well-structured solutions that help make it easier for them in this and that, you know, they can interact with a trusted counterparty. Um, and so um, we think that there's a lot of room for both. And um I think to get this next wave of adopters, you're going to need kind of custodial solutions that really work for people, which could be like ETFs, ETPs, SMAs, or, you know, um, wallets themselves, custodial wallets themselves. Yeah, these are the solutions that scale, right? And that's how you get bring the masses in scalable solutions that, you know, are much easier to onboard into. So super important part that I think gets lost on. Um, some of the folks that have been in the crypto space for a long time, there are definitely some who get it and say, you know, whatever is easiest to help onboard people into the space, whatever gets them started, um, you know, sort of an important means to an end. But there's definitely a group that is not necessarily fa uh, a fan of kind of the idea of bringing this new innovative technology that has all of these really interesting capabilities and quote unquote improvements versus traditional products that we've seen in traditional investments back into a package that we've seen before. But to your point, super important for, for onboarding and getting the masses into the space. So with that, I do want to talk about what Wisdom Tree is doing specific to this because I find it fascinating. And again, that first mover advantage, super important, probably a lot to cover here. So not sure who wants to start, but just maybe give give everyone an update on what Wisdom Tree is working on here. Yeah, I'll, I'll start and then Jeremy can chime in. So we describe our digital asset strategy really in, in two big ways. The first is trying to bring crypto to mainstream investors. A lot of the stuff that we've talked about before, that's you know ETFs, ETPs, ETFs when they'd get allowed, ETPs, uh, separately managed accounts slash direct indexing, you know, supporting other people's SMAs. Um, that's um, one way that we're trying to do that, which you know makes a lot of sense in how a lot of people are you know, traditional asset managers or other asset managers are bringing solutions here. But um, the other is in terms of trying to bring mainstream exposures digital is the second leg of our overall strategy. For us, this is trying to use this technology like Jeremy spoke about earlier to digitize kind of existing mainstream financial assets, whether those are physical assets like gold or other commodities, as well as um, you know mutual funds or other funds that um, you know the shares of which a record can be tokenized and held in individuals' wallets. So we've created what we're calling Wisdom Tree Prime. It's a um, it's a wallet that's actually all blockchain native that allows kind of mainstream assets to sit alongside crypto in we think a very novel new way. Uh, it's going to be direct to consumer. It's kind of Wisdom Tree's first D 2 C app like this. Um, you can sign up at WisdomTreePrime.com if you want to be an early beta. Uh, beta tester 
And um, it's something we're very excited about. You know, when we first started, you know, I described launching this first Bitcoin ETP. Um, but, you know, a lot of people in those times were starting to talk about what does this mean for kind of traditional financial services? Can blockchain based services kind of improve upon settlement and things like that? We can talk about all the kind of underlying things like this. And then, you know, we started working on it then. And then today you've got a journal article talking about how Goldman Sachs is saying blockchain is going to replace all of their underlying financial infrastructure and things like that. So, you know, it's going to be a long journey, like, don't get me wrong, but the idea that you can have, you know, 24 seven settlement, do things like atomic settlement instead of having to DVP, all these are very core innovations that impact, we think ETF sponsors, but really the capital markets and financial services more broadly. I mean, one of the things that uh, you could say is where, what, when, when, when Will talked about Wisdom Tree Prime and tokenizing assets and putting things together, what's the end benefit for clients? Why do they care about the, you know, the blockchain improving the infrastructure? You know, one of the, the things we've been talking about is like, where do, you know, when people, we talk about saving, spending, investing, there's three big buckets of things people do. Um, and you say, where do the financial firms make their money? In today's macro environment, what's happening? You have the Fed raising rates aggressively. What's happening in your checking account? You're not getting anything. Even in your savings accounts, you're not getting much. And so that is a big problem for consumers and they, they don't even know how much money they're giving up now and the fed didn't have high rates for a while but now there is some real meaningful short-term interest rates um you're gonna get another 75 basis points from the fed in 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 a few weeks um you can get over three to four percent and and to be able to do that in a way where people's spending money is actually earning the real rate of interest um is is actually a key and and that's one of the things we hope to help disrupt some of the ways the traditional banks earn their money um, is is by enabling this better saving, spending, investing in one app is is a key part of our story. Well, I, I think one of the things that, and this applies, you know, from institutional like the biggest asset custodians in the world to like you know community banks, like they make money on points of friction, right? Where it's an idea that hey, people, and this happens in every brokerage account in the United States. People keep more money in cash than they need to right? Like they keep like 20% of their books in cash. They earn like very little on it. All they need to do is move it into like a short duration, like ETF or money market fund or other things. Now there's not, they're not cash equivalents. I don't mean to suggest that, but in terms of like how they can, you know, get more interest from the, their money, there are lots of options. People don't. Um, and that's, that's how Schwab, right? Was able to cut commissions to zero. So that's just emblematic, I think, of the point that you know, financial firms make their money on point, many financial firms make their money on friction in the system. And if you're able to decrease these friction using new technology, in this case, we're just talking about block, just a new type of database technology to make this happen, um, that unlocks a lot of value for people. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, we're not the only ones focused on that, but we certainly think it's an important part of kind of the go forward growth for the firm. So scaling it back, right? For for um, the people listening, a lot of them, you know, trying to learn about crypto, trying to learn about blockchain, Web3, DeFi, whatever you want to call it. In simplest terms, if we're just trying to kind of peel back the layers here on the benefits of bringing even, say, 40 act funds on chain, what are the benefits both from, you know, an end user, the retail investor perspective, as well as for the asset manager themselves? Let's dive in a little bit to that. 
So for the retail perspective, and it, I don't mean to suggest that this is like a tomorrow event, like it's definitely like innovation that'll happen in stages over time and you try and do a little bit and then keep innovating and keep innovating. Um, but some of the things that I mentioned before of kind of things about this technology that you think could be applied to kind of traditional assets or traditional funds. So one is settlement, right? So right now uh, in kind of traditional financial markets, you're talking about like, uh, you know, 930 to four or whatever it ends up being. Um, kind of trading window with T plus two settlement. Um, and anyone who's trading crypto has known that they can trade 24-7, 365, and um, they settle instantly. Or like if you're trading kind of in a DeFi, like on Uniswap, it says like as long as the next block takes to print, right? To print. Um, so um, that like in and of itself is a pretty remarkable innovation. To me. Like the, the idea that you're able to kind of settle instantly like that uh, counterparty to counterparty is um, pretty remarkable. And so you can definitely think about if you're tokenizing traditional assets, that could be something that could be applied there as well. Um, another within that settlement is the idea of atomic settlement, where you can essentially using software code set up things where one asset can be exchanged immediately for another asset. So you've got, you know, a US, let's say you're doing like USDC to ETH on Uniswap, right? Like that transaction, there's no counterparty in the middle that's saying like, oh, I've got this USDC, now I pass it to somebody else and vice versa with the ETH, right? You're just doing that using software where both of them pledge it to smart contract, it swaps, and then they each have the underlying. Like if you actually think about how settlement processes work in traditional finance, it's very different. Where typically things are like done on like a DVP basis or something like that, where delivery versus payment, where you've got cash over here on one architecture, you've got a securities over here on another architecture, and they need to be swapped right across kind of systems. Um, it's not like a inherently riskless process, which leads to some things where people need to hold capital against it, slows down processing times and things like that. So um, those are just two kind of examples of how like the settlement process could be improved, which could potentially reduce the capital needed to be held in the system. And there's a lot to be worked. Like, I don't mean to be one of these like, you know, utopians just like, oh, we're just going to go to like 24 7, 365 stock settlement overnight because blockchain. Like, it's going to take a long time to like be able to get there. Uh, but you're starting to see some of these ideas of um, innovation as well. Um, and I guess the last one is just in terms of control of your um, money, right? Or control of the assets that you hold, where anyone who's got like a MetaMask wallet knows that they're the one who can actually like affect those transactions. Uh, and then if you're, that's, kind of a cool empowering thing to be able to do and you know there's definitely the the usability elements that we spoke about before in the security but being able to affect transactions yourself instead of needing to send an order to another system who does it on your behalf um, for certain users and a lot of use cases is a very kind of powerful tool and innovation that um, I don't think just needs to be limited to crypto assets over time. I mean, one of the things when we started the ETF business, you know, 16, 17 years ago, people were like, why do we need the ETF? What does that bring? And so there was transparency, there was the structure, but really all the innovation in asset management over the last 17 years came in ETF form. Like if you had a new strategy, you weren't launching it in a mutual fund form, you were launching it in, in ETF form, like all innovation came there. And there's a good chance that the future, if you go 20 years forward from today, that a lot of the innovation comes out blockchain enabled in, in many ways, that the token wrapper is going to be a new wrapper. It's where the future of finance is going for, for a lot of different reasons and sort of bringing costs out of the system 
is one thing. Um, the, the ability to communicate with your customers as a firm, um, you know, today, it, one of the, it's a pro and con of the ETF business. We don't have the direct client list like a mutual fund firm did where they, they knew their orders every single day. Like we know accounts at Schwab, but we don't know the individual customers really. And, and there's a few firms with like a monopoly of that information. But this, you know, with the smart contract system, the free flowing communication, the speed of communicating, the speed of sending payments is a very different world that's going to unlock a lot of innovation. And that's the reason why we're, we're positioning ourselves to be a leader here. I guess one final big picture thing I'd say, you know, when, when our CEO and founder founded the firm, he kind of, remar- and, you know, made it an ETF firm, noted that like at the time, you know, mutual funds, like you needed to have like a direct relationship, which with every big mutual fund shop, right? And like, all you needed to own an ETF was a brokerage account. And that was like a very revolutionary new model at the time. And then now we're talking about all you need in the future to own kind of a digital asset, whatever that could be is a smartphone. Uh, which is like a a big step function shift, I think, um, in terms of how people can engage with financial services and what they need to have to be able to do that. So um, I think that's a big picture thing in terms of the distribution opportunities um, that uh, that this could unlock going forward. And it's, it's so important that you mentioned mobile experience too, right? Because everything that we do today is on our phones. So especially when you're talking about your D2C solution, I mean, there are so many benefits to just having that at your fingertips, no matter where you go. And I, I've talked to a lot of people on kind of the crypto side of things, especially working in the Solana ecosystem, where it's they're trying to make that entire experience accessible through your phone, because then there's, again, removing friction points and making it easier and easier for everyone to kind of get access to their crypto and perform activities that they would from their phone instead of their computer. And everyone has one, right? Like, yeah. like there's, I think there's more mobile phones than there are like, indoor plumbing systems it's something crazy like that where like and i I know this is like a very typically like a very developed world but like in the developing world right like they are more omnipresent than you would really think which is um i don't know it's it's remarkable in terms of what that could mean in terms of and even at like a more basic level just providing people better financial access um it's a very um yeah it's a very big thing clearly so I have a bit of a sort of maybe a dumb question, but I figure if I'm wondering it, other people maybe as well who are just learning about this too. So in the process of tokenizing, say, 40 Act funds, right? When you have a crypto fund, the crypto assets that are underlying that all operate on blockchain, 24-7 liquidity, markets never close. How does it work with traditional assets and bringing them on chain when the underlyings are based in traditional markets that are five days a week, traditional market hours. What are the yeah. logistics of that? Oh, no, it's a great question. I mean, it is like you, that is something that you just need to work through and bridge where you're dealing with a, what you think would be, and and for just for the purpose of clarity, what we, we've spoken about, and like you can read this in a filing with the SEC is the idea of, uh, you know, it's tokenizing a, a share class record. Uh, so the idea is that the transfer agent would maintain the actual true underlying books and records, but there would be a secondary record ma- uh, maintained on either the Ethereum or Stellar network. So I just th- did want to clarify that one point, but it's true. You're kind of interacting with kind of two traditional systems where there's like the 
blockchain that's on one side, but then the actual underlying assets, it's still just like a mutual fund that trades. And so it's not to say that if you lived in a future theoretical world where, I mean, you could even look at like stable coins where this is some of the place today where they've got 24 seven trading of like USDC or whatever, but the actual cash moving in and out of the underlying bank account, right, is still subject to those cash kind of rails and restrictions. And sometimes there might be a mismatch or, you know, theoretical issues that could happen with it. So um, those aren't like solved yet. Um, like it's not like this is a, you know, a token that's wrapped of other tokens that's able to do everything like decentralized. Like, no, you still need like a counterparty on the other side that's able to hold this in custody and kind of work through those settlement cycles. And um, yeah, I mean, over time, I think hopefully this kind of improves it all, but uh, there isn't like a magical solution to that right now. Gotcha. Well, baby steps, right? It takes, it's a process for sure for uh, kind of moving things over and I'm sure it'll take a while. Um, from the perspective of, you know, working with Wisdom Tree, having all of the conversations that you're having with a lot of larger firms, whether that's institutional or sort of uh, those working with retail or, you know, financial advisors, et cetera. What are those groups of people, those pools of money most interested in within crypto right now? Because I feel like, Earlier on, it made sense that Bitcoin was kind of the traditional entry point, maybe stable coins, but things have gotten really interesting from an offerings perspective of everything that's out there, whether that's yield, farming, DeFi products, everything. What are they looking into the, the most and where is the demand highest from a product perspective? I mean, certainly ETH is like the topic of the moment, right? Like the merge is happening in two days. I think a lot of people are incredibly interested in this as it should be. Um, and I think, you know, it gets to kind of a foundational question in the crypto space is going to be, you know, we could just kind of take it for granted that like Bitcoin is like the largest crypto asset. I, it might not always be going forward, right? And um, there's been a bit of a performance decoupling between Bitcoin and ETH, you could say over like the past three months uh, or so, I think. So I think that's a very interesting, relevant conversation. I think the idea of like staking ETH and earning like, uh, you know, I don't know what the latest... Um, estimate of rewards would be, but like high single digits uh, is a pretty remarkable, you know, investment opportunity in some ways. So um, I um, I think ETH is certainly where there's been a lot of conversation and interest um, recently. I think there's, you know, people getting more and more comfortable with Bitcoin and ETH themselves. Going beyond that is both hard for people to understand from just like a due diligence, like what are these things perspective? And there's kind of additional regulatory considerations that some people could have. So um, there's, I think there's a also a lot of guidance requested, uh, kind of understanding things uh, beyond Bitcoin and ETH. Jeremy, what would you say? I, I, yeah, I, would, I would reinforce all that. I mean, I, I brought up the staking earlier because I think a lot of the conversations um, when, when Kate talks about merging TradFi and, and DeFi, the, the TradFi firms, we, we've talked with firms that you know were, were initially focused on fixed income opportunities and are seeing the yield opportunities from staking. And, and see that as a, as a new source of income. And, and so I think that is, at least from the traditional finance world, where a lot of the interest is right now. And then big picture wise, right? Where do you see, you know, not just specific to Wisdom Tree, because obviously you guys are kind of already making the moves in terms of adopting this space and trying to bring it into like your business as a whole and from a product perspective, tech perspective, everything. Where do you see other asset managers getting involved in crypto and getting that um, kind of implemented as part of their business um, in terms of like natural pro progression of where to start and sort of how that develops over time? Yeah, I mean, it's like I kind of said earlier, like it's 
it's really evolved a lot over the past uh, couple years where, you know, in terms of like the, in terms of giving exposure to crypto assets to their clients, you know, in Europe, like we compete with two of the largest, the world's largest asset managers today in Invesco and Fidelity, right? So they've already kind of crossed that bridge, Fidelity, certainly. Um, it you know wouldn't be surprising to see more people file for an ETF in the United States when they have more uh, idea of getting approval. I mean, BlackRock just launched a a Bitcoin trust, so I think in terms of getting both beta exposure to Bitcoin and ETH, a, a lot of people have entered that space. Um, less so in terms of like active or yield generating strategies or kind of other alternative tokens beyond ETH, but um, I think that's only a matter of time. Uh, and then on the tokenization. In terms of you know blockchain as a technology, I, I mean, there's been a lot of development there too. Um, you know, certainly with firms like Aberdeen, you know, made an uh, investment in a um, in a firm called Archax in the UK. Uh, you've got Schroders that made a recent investment. It was quoted in the FT with some like really grandiose promises about like what tokenization is going to do for their business. So um, we've seen it a lot in terms of what. Uh, that other people have entered this kind of R&D experimental phase. Another firm, Franklin Templeton's actually got a uh, filing as well for a, uh, a tokenized fund. So um, yeah, there's been a lot of kind of continued movement here in the space. I, I don't think yet that it's tangible for like, like if you're a financial advisor listening to this, you're probably like, oh, that all sounds great, but like, I, I'm still, I can't buy any of this today. Like it's, um, that's gonna take some more time to develop. And, you know, we think we're an early mover there with, uh, with Wisdom Tree Prime. Advisors want a crypto spot ETF. Um, I, I do want to talk about with that with you guys as well. I, I had um, a recording with Adam Bloomberg as well from Interaxis, kind of from a financial advisor's perspective of getting onboarded into crypto. And we clearly talked about a crypto ETF or Bitcoin spot ETF a lot. Um, but from the perspective of working from a firm that is in the ETF business, obviously very heavily, What's your viewpoint on that in terms of the U.S. approving one, in terms of kind of the hesitations and maybe even potential timelines from your perspective? I know it's a bit of a guessing game on that front. Yeah, the hesitations have always been around really two, with the first being, I think, the biggest hesitation, which is the potential for market manipulation and the lack of a surveillance sharing agreement with like an underlying market of sufficient size. I think that the technical term behind it, essentially the SEC's concern within that category is that you know, there's so much trading in the Bitcoin market that happens in what they're considering like these unregulated kind of off-market, you know, exchanges. And um, none of the U.S. domiciled exchanges have ever come to the SEC and said like, hey, I'd like to like register my shop as like, and never, like that process doesn't exist. Like that, they say that, but like that doesn't exist. So um, you're kind of in a little bit of a standstill where the industry is like, well, you know, this we're trading these these tokens, we're trading Bitcoin. Um, I guess it's not a regulated market of sufficient size. And the SEC is saying, you know, that could lead to market manipulation or other fraudulent activity. Uh, and so we don't want to approve an ETF for an asset kind of underlying it. I mean, there's it's a little bit of, with the idea that there are Bitcoin futures ETFs approved uh, and there's a Bitcoin futures market, which is based on the underlying spot market. So I think a lot of people have asked kind of a question about that. And that's kind of part of, I believe, Grayscale's uh, lawsuit with the SEC. But that's really the first uh, issue that does not seem like it can easily be um, resolved at this point in time, um, at least with where the industry is and what kind of the SEC's position is. I'd say the second is around custody, um, which has actually improved a lot where you've got, you know, you've got bank 
bank custodians, uh, like a U.S. bank is the named custodian in our filing. They're a actual like bank uh, that's offering the service, uh, which is about as kind of a qualified as you can get to be a custodian. So I think a lot of things have improved there. I do think the first question around um, the potential for market manipulation is going to continue to be a hard one to address um, as the SEC's um, kind of held to it. So I've always had questions about the the market manipulation aspect of this, right? And what actually constitutes a market of like size or, you know, what the actual kind of quote around that is. But we've seen spot ETFs in other countries, I guess. And from your perspectives of sort of looking into looking at it from a global perspective with other products that have launched in other countries um, outside of the U.S. where there's they've been approved. How have we seen that roll out? I haven't seen any issues related to kind of what the SEC has said, but maybe I'm not looking closely enough for where their hesitations lie. I, I mean, I don't know that you could necessarily, I think you'd need to point to like a 20% move in Bitcoin and then say, oh, that's evidence of like market manipulation, right? Like somebody had done something spoofed or something like that on Binance, which caused like a cascading effect, which led to a, a US-based security to have a, a, you know, a manipulated price. I, you know, how we judge the effectiveness of our product in Europe is are we tracking underlying spot, right? Is the net asset value close to the kind of market traded price of our product? And like, you know, well-structured ETPs, which have a daily creation redemption mechanism, they do, right? Like you're sure you're going to get like moments where things can like move a little bit apart for a little bit, like you get with all ETFs during times of kind of a lot of trading or things like that. But they work as intended in that sense. Um, and our expectation is that a well-structured ETF could do that as well uh, in the US, but I, I don't, we always don't have the research to point to. And I don't think anyone has the research to point to saying, oh, this Bitcoin price at this point in time was like not subject to any sort of like manipulation or anything like that. I, I think that's a, um, you know, gonna be one to, that you just need to see. Whereas you can evaluate like the underlying futures market uh, in the US, which is you know regulated by the CFTC and things like that. So a lot of people in, in the past have pointed back to like, I think it's with like oil or gold when um, the SEC approved the earlier ETF. So this would have been like decade plus ago, um, more than a decade ago, was the idea that it was a futures market uh, for gold that was constituted the market of sufficient size that got the SEC comfortable with that provision and allowed them to approve the first gold ETF, which in the US was a GLD. So, um, you know, that market exists today, certainly for Bitcoin. It's got a lot of liquidity on it, but it hasn't uh, seemed to address the SEC's concern. So that was a long answer to say, I, I don't know exactly um, how you would prove that. Worth a shot with asking though, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I feel like um, the, the ETF conversations could go for a very long time. And I know people have very strong feelings on that both ways, but um, want to wrap things up here for sure. And because we have both of you on here, I do always ask the same questions on the end of my podcast. And it's more musing on best and worst case scenarios here. Obviously, we're all on this podcast and doing the work that we're doing because we're bullish on crypto and blockchain technology and seeing that scale and, you know, get integrated into different parts of life and financial services and so on. But looking at it kind of best case, worst case, we see um, kind of a two-part question here. One, if crypto were to take off, absolutely crush it, become like integrated with different areas of society, financial services, everything, just really part of everyday life, what will be the main cause of that success. And on the flip side, if we see sort of a doomsday scenario, crypto tanks, it doesn't get used by really 
anyone, it sort of go not to say go to zero, but you know, never sees that mass acceptance at scale that we think that it should and will. What will the reason for its quote unquote failure be? So sort of a little bit of both sides of the coin there. Don't know who wants to start with that. I'll I'll start, Jer. I'll just jump in. Um, I, I think on the first one, it would be is, does this feel like more integrated with the rest of financial assets would be? And are fir- firms like us and what we're doing, um, does that actually make that easier for a lot of people to think of this as like a financial asset, like they do other financial assets uh, and being able to integrate them ap- across so that you actually have this idea of this, you know, these worlds merging a little bit more in terms of how people engage with them. And it's not kind of restricted to a group of early adopters who are just really into it. Like, I think one thing that I think this is a critique of like the way DeFi is today is that like the biggest DeFi users, as far as I can tell, are just crypto hedge funds who are like yield farming and trading in these protocols and, or, you know, doing various things there on lending pools, whatever you want to say, like, okay, that's, that's cool. Like we've proven a good use case, but like, do we like, how do you actually get beyond that initial thing where people like who just need a loan are going to it and just actually getting a loan, right? Like maybe that's a very simple example, but that's what I think is going to need to be figured out um, kind of for success. Um, and then I guess for failure, maybe it's more of the inverse of that. Like, do these just exist in kind of two parallel universes and you just got a, a group of people who are very focused on just like, you know, trading and the prices and things like that that never actually merge into um, you know, what people are working on in terms of traditional financial services, in terms of actually solving problems for people's lives. It's going to be hard to top that answer. So I, I, I'll, I'll just make a, a, a small twist on it. I mean, I, I think the, the technology platform for innovation, you know, I, I commented that all the innovation came out in ETFs earlier and sort of just restating that. Like if, it, if this becomes the platform you build on, for all sorts of different, whether it's financial services or, or others, is it really the co- computing platform you're building on top of? And, and I think so, you know, ETH has that potential as like where people are doing more program stuff on top of it versus a Bitcoin, which is really competing um, as just a, you could say as a speculative asset. So, you know, is there a point where it becomes saturated with users and you've, you've got enough, you've got the endpoint of demand? Um, you know, the gold market cap would say there's still more of, you know, potential adoption that that's ahead um but you know you got to see the use case for each asset is slightly differently um like gold is very different than eth and very different than solana and all the others so i I think to the extent that you see platforms using this innovative technology that's going to be the use case we're trying to to be that bridge Uh, i I like you talk about being the bridge between tradfi and DeFi. we're trying to position our firm exactly in that way to be the traditional asset manager, but also really connect these dots for the technology, bring it mainstream. And, uh, and hopefully if you follow us in the next 36 months, you'll see a lot of day after day advances in that, in that direction. Love it. No, I will definitely be following closely. Hopefully my listeners will as well. Um, but for, for that, I mean, I guess while we're at it, where can people who are listening to this follow along most closely with all the wisdom trees updates in the coming months? We're trying to do a lot in social media world. So a bunch of us are on Love Twitter. <laughs> so I'm Jeremy D. Schwartz. We got Wills on Twitter. We've got a, a team um, who's who's there. But Wisdom Tree Prime, as Will said earlier, has has the wait list. You want to get the app when it comes fully functional. Um, and uh, and 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 
you know, our, we have earnings calls as a public company, so we, we often give updates on where the business is going on those as well. Uh, and so people can tune into that. And, uh, and we, we do a lot of writing, publishing, podcasting. We have a crypto clarified podcast as well. So a lot of, uh, a lot of places to learn from Wisdom Tree. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. Well, really appreciate you coming on and appreciate all the work you're doing with Wisdom Tree to sort of, again, build bridges between TradFi and DeFi and excited to see what you guys come up with next. Thank you to everyone for listening as well. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks a lot, Kate. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency.